What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Newman, and I will be going through more listener questions. All the stuff that you guys are asking me, you're emailing in, you're calling into our speak pipe, which is awesome. You're leaving us voicemails, which you can do at financialresidency.com slash question. We're answering all the good stuff that you have. But I want to address something really quick. I've received a lot of questions around financial planners and where to find one or how to vet one, which I'm going to address in an upcoming show. But I just want to toss it out here so everyone knows so it's perfectly clear. Myself, Casey, who you hear on our Friday shows, she's my partner at Physician Wall Services, as well as the entire team at Physician Wall Services. We're all fee-only financial planners that work with physicians all across the country. We're fiduciaries for our clients. We're only the one of the only firms in the country that charges a fixed flat fee to work with us. It's right there on our website at physicianwealthservices.com. There aren't any asset under management fees. There's no hidden fees, no gotchas, no investment minimums. So yes, you can have $0 in investments and still benefit greatly by working with us. Honestly, it's just high quality advice for a fair fixed flat fee price. Say that three times fast. And you know what? I'm actually going to toss this out here too, because if you haven't made meaningful progress to your financial plan, like actually built a plan, pen to paper or typing it out, of course, and then started implementing that plan in the last few months, or let's say since COVID has started, and be honest with yourself, if you haven't made meaningful progress, you really need to reach out to us and start working on a plan and implementing that plan. You're only hurting yourself at this point. Now, if you have made progress or if you built a plan, put that pen to paper, awesome. Keep staying motivated, keep making progress, keep yourself financially fit, keep your financial life healthy, and don't stop improving. So all that to say, what we do is what many of you are actually looking for and emailing and asking me questions. So if you don't have a financial planner or if you are with a financial planner that isn't a fiduciary, meaning that they're putting in writing, that your interests are always going to be ahead of theirs, or if your planner charges a fee based on how much you have invested with them, then reach out to us at physicianwellservices.com and let's see if we're a good fit to work together. You're going to book a call, a free introductory call, and it's with me. Not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's going to be with me. And I'd love to get to know you and see if we are a good fit to work together as your financial advisor. So, Now that I got that out of the way, I'm really excited to dig into these questions that we have coming in from our community, and we've gotten so many more. I'm going to try to keep answering, honestly, as many as I can, and I'm probably going to sprinkle them in various shows throughout the remainder of the year because you guys are really emailing in some awesome questions. So with that, let's jump into our first question from one of our listeners. Hi, Ryan. I had a question for you about how much of an emergency fund my family should carry. I consider myself fairly financially literate, and I've been listening to your podcast for a few years now, and I know the typical advice of carrying three to six months of expenses. My wife and I are a two-doctor family, and we make a gross income of about $400,000 a year total. We max out our retirement accounts. We actually just paid off our student loans a year ago. We were doing very well prior to uh, COVID, and we were carrying an emergency fund of $40,000 in an online savings account, and we carried another $20,000 in our checking account to help with monthly expenses and credit cards and those type of things so that they were all paid off. My question has to do with 
what happened with COVID really made me rethink how much I should carry in an emergency fund. My practice uh, basically closed for eight weeks because I'm a surgical subspecialist performing elective surgery. So I had essentially uh, zero income other than sparse collections from prior months for those two months. And my overhead expenses in my practice, my personal overhead expenses are about $35,000 a month. Even since I've been able to start working again, I'm only making 33% of my previous income because my salary is paid by a PPP loan that my practice was fortunate enough to get. So my question has to do with how do you balance carrying potentially a very large emergency fund in my situation versus the opportunity cost of not using that money for other things like investments? Should I be carrying an emergency fund of, say, $170,000, which I'm getting that number from a $35,000 monthly overhead with my practice times three is $105,000 plus about sixty dollars or $65,000, which would be six months of personal family expenses. That just seems like a really large emergency fund for someone to carry, but it probably would have made me sleep better during March and April during COVID when my income was sparse and I didn't know when I'd be back at work. Uh, certainly there are situations where I could be disabled and be out of work for three months waiting for my disability insurance to kick in and we might be in a similar situation and not have a bailout or a PPP loan to come save us. So just wanted to get your thoughts on that situation and I thought it might be helpful for anyone else who's out there that might be in somewhat of a similar situation. So thanks very much for all that you do. Take care. All right. So you didn't tell me your name, which is totally cool. By the way, all of you can do this anonymous as you see here. But this is a fantastic question. And I think this is perfect to lead this episode off on. So we mainly talk about personal finance on the show. But almost anything that I talk about, all the principles and behaviors and everything that we're talking about your personal finances can be and should be applied to your practice as well. Many of you are either forgetting or you're choosing to ignore that if you own a business, it needs to be ran correctly. And it's funny that I usually say run your personal finances like a well-run business, utilizing forecasting, think further ahead. You know, this is the things that you do when people's livelihoods depend on you, right? AKA your employees. But this time around, you saw through COVID kind of forcing you to see this, that you weren't looking at your business finances correctly and that you didn't have an emergency fund really built into your business. And we can call them cash reserves. We can call them all sorts of fancy business terms. But in reality, it's an emergency fund. And we're seeing, honestly, that across many of the major companies that are begging for bailout money. And honestly, sadly, they received it because they were too busy buying back their shares in prior years with their cash reserves instead of practicing good financial habits. Now, obviously, you weren't buying back shares and doing anything because you're a small entity, but you weren't practicing necessarily good financial habits and behaviors. But the same applies from your personal finances that you're thinking through to your business. So if you need to hold three or six or 12 months of, let's call it just emergency funds, we're all on the same page, for your business and your personal, then you might need to. And yeah, it might sound like a lot of money, but like you said, if you were to become disabled... The government's not going to come in and bail you out and you're going to have maybe a 90 day or 180 day elimination period on your disability. Match that, right? So if, if for 90 days, you're not going to get any payment from your disability, 
you need to have at least three months reserve for your personal as well as your business. And there's other different planning techniques that you can have or apply to your business, but from a very high level and getting you thinking through this, the 170000 that you mentioned sounds like a ton of money, but it really isn't. If you're spending $35,000 a month on your business, keeping employees happy or softwares or whatever else your expenses that are occurring and that are recurring, that will happen regardless if you are working or not. You absolutely need to protect that just like you would protect your personal side that your rent payment or your mortgage payment is still coming due whether you're working and earning an income or not. So now the big debate is going to be how much do you need to hold in reserves? And this is very personal. Like you said it yourself, you would have slept better at night knowing that you had these reserves. So time to step up, time to think through this. And really have those reserves as you're getting back to work and you're earning. It might stink to think about the cash drag of, oh, I could have invested this money. But when you really do need it, you don't want to be invested because like in March when everything was happening and the market was crashing, you don't want that emergency fund that you're going to need and be depending on for that 35000 a month times three. You know, what if it was invested in the market and it was down 30%? Now you don't have all that money to depend on. So you're going to want to hold it in the bank in a high-yield savings or a savings account. Most businesses can't actually get high-yield savings accounts, but you're going to hold it there and you need to plan appropriately. Is three months, four months, six months, what what would make you comfortable? What is the true cost that you need? What costs could be cut if you were out of work and not working and the business wasn't earning income? If everything shuts down again, what would that look like? And that would be the number I would try to hold in the business. And then on your personal side, now, we're seeing anywhere from three to six months. Don't blow this up and go, well, I need 12 months reserve on both ends. You will have cash drag and that won't be as beneficial to you. But anywhere in that three to six month range is going to be perfectly acceptable. But think of them as separate entities because they are and you need emergency funds on both sides. If you have multiple businesses, say your spouse was working and had their own side gig, you need an emergency fund for that one if there are people that are depending on you or expenses that will come regardless if you're making money or not. Think email hosting and providers for the websites or whatever it is that you're doing, whatever licensing and fees to operate or legal fees to keep the entity running. All of that stuff needs to have costs associated with it, accounted for, and then built in to figure out what that emergency fund would look like. All right, so this next question I'm really excited to dig into because this is an amazing physician that contacted me on Twitter and not many of you messaged me there. So I wanted to make sure that this question was answered honestly just because I don't interact much on there and you guys don't really interact with me much on there. So the fact that someone did, I was really excited. Uh, If you want to interact with me there, I always try to respond to tweets and direct messages and things like that. But you can follow me at Physician Wealth on Twitter. So let's hear from, I'll leave him anonymous because he never said if he wanted to be or not, but let's hear from an amazing physician in our community that came from Twitter. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for everything that you do on the show. I've got a question for you about deferred spending. My wife and I live in a high cost of living major metropolitan city in the Southeast. She's an international tax CPA and I'm a practicing physician. I'm about four years out of training and only have two and a half years until I reached public service loan forgiveness. 
we're waiting until then, but in about three years or so, we're planning to move into a different neighborhood in the city, but it will be a much more expensive home. Right now, we're working on saving up in order to have a large down payment to have a minimal monthly mortgage payment. We were wondering, what venues would you recommend as we're saving up those funds for that deferred spending? Would you recommend a regular savings account? high-yield saving account that we would need to open up using a brokerage account to let that money grow for the short term to maximize it or some combination. Thanks. Looking forward to hearing your response. All right. So now we're going through and looking at the difference between savings account, like a basic one, a high-yield savings, or a brokerage account. So this almost like piggybacks off of our first question, although this deals with something different because you're looking at saving up for a down payment on a home, not worried about your income flow. So any money that you are going to be saving for near-term future spending, that's 12 months or less, absolutely no questions asked, needs to be held as cash in the bank in preferably a high-yield savings account. Now, high-yield savings accounts pre-COVID were around 2%. I talk about Ally all the time. I don't get paid by Ally. I just personally use them, like them. They were about 2% pre-COVID. Now they're like 0.6 or 0.7. So obviously rates have plummeted across the board. That's why a lot of you are refinancing your mortgages or refining your student debt. Well, same thing applies if rates are coming down. So are going to be the yields in the high yield savings account. So preferably in a high yield savings account. But if you don't have that available or honestly, the difference between zero and 0.6, there is difference. It's better than zero, but it's not something that I would blow up everything to move and change if this was. Yeah, you know, truly just for 12 month costs. Now, larger purchases like saving for a home, I think really depend on the timing of the purchase rather than the amounts. So if you said, hey, look, I'm going to save for a home, but I'm probably not going to buy said home until uh, six years from now. I'd probably be looking at investing that money until it was about roughly three years away from when I needed it. And since you are really at that three year mark, I personally, this is again different for everyone, but I personally would be saving that into a high yield savings account versus investing that market. And this is not to do with, well, COVID's happening or the markets are at near all time highs or whatever. It wouldn't matter if the market was, this was the end of March and things had just plummeted 30%, I would have the same answer. Now, other large purchases that you might not actually think of them as purchases, but they are like paying for college, right? This type of savings for this future purchase, the purchase of education for your child is best done in a 529, especially if you get state deductions. Now, we have some questions this month that have already come through on 529, so I won't go super in depth here, but expenses that are longer than five years, I'd look at investing. If it's less than five years, I think it's really gonna depend on you your cash situation, your ability to earn income. And the thought changes drastically the more money that you make or save per month. So those with households that have higher incomes can be more aggressive and invest versus households that have lower earning potential. You have to be a little more conservative in the way that you're allocating your funds. So I don't have all the details, but hopefully this gets you thinking a little bit better about where to allocate and how to allocate those funds. Now, once you've already bought the house, this is where this next question comes in. 
And I think we really need to unpack the truth behind buying a home and training or not. So let's hear from our next community member. Hey, a huge fan of the podcast. My wife and I have been listening for about a year now. She and I are both physicians and we're both in the final year of our training. We are internal medicine and pediatric subspecialists. So we're seven years in after our graduation from medical school. Uh, We have a specific question that I think you're one of the few people that's poised to help us out with. So we bought our home in Denver with a physician home loan about three years ago. And now that we are approaching the end of our fellowship training, we've been looking for jobs and essentially had no plans to leave Denver, but ended up getting job offers in the place that we're from. And uh, and they sort of are too good to turn down. So we're probably going to be leaving Denver in July, which will put us at almost exactly three years in this house. So as you can imagine, three years is not enough time to have made much equity in the house. We essentially made minimum mortgage payments over that period while we were still in training. And when we bought this house, we had no immediate plans to leave. We had figured we'd be here for five to ten years and this wouldn't be an issue, but here we are. So we have a couple of options, it seems like. One would be to try to sell the house in Denver and probably cut our losses, maybe break even because the housing market here is generally pretty competitive. But what I think we'd like to do is rent the house in Denver. That's a little complicated for a couple of reasons. One would be, uh, I think with the physician's home loan, it has to be your primary residence. So it seems like we would have to refinance that loan in order to rent it. And then B, we have, we've done, we've been listening to your podcast and we've done a pretty good job with an emergency fund and investments and 401k and a Vanguard fall mutual fund for some moonlighting money that we've made. But we definitely don't have enough money uh, without wiping everything out to make a down payment where we're going to be moving to. And so I think my question to you would be, um, in that situation, what are some of our options? The way I see it is possibly we could refinance the house in Denver and rent it and hope to probably won't have much cash flow, but we'll hopefully sort of build equity in a pretty hot market and then in a few years maybe be able to make some money on the sale of the house. Would that be uh, advisable if we refinance the home to then get another physician's home loan for our hometown and buy a house there? Again, the market's a lot different there. Stand to be able to get a lot more house for a lot less money. Or would the best option be to refinance this house and rent it and then just try to rent in the hometown for a while and so that we don't get underneath on how much we owe versus how much money we make. Now, we're going to be making a, a pretty significant amount of money compared to what we're currently making because we're both going to take subspecialist attendings jobs. But that's an interesting scenario, one that I thought maybe you'd be able to help us out with. So if you have any thoughts, uh, I'd appreciate to hear them. Thanks. All right. So I wish that this was one of the first times I've ever heard this type of question. Granted, you went into a good amount of detail, which is awesome, and I appreciate it. But sadly, this is the reality of many physicians who are buying their homes and training. So I think we should break it down for a second because that was a long question. And I want to basically summarize it in probably a few points here. So the first point would be your options are to sell the home. You're likely going to take a loss. Then you're going to buy a home in the new area. Option two would be to sell the home. Again, likely taking a loss. 
and rent in the new area. And the third scenario that I see here is to rent the home, hope it makes money, rent in the new area until you have enough down payment. I don't know if you can technically buy a home with any down payment. I don't know how much down payment you have. It sounds like you didn't have enough to rent the home and have enough for a down payment. So I think those are the three options that you currently have. And one thing I want to make sure that we clarify first, I don't forget it after hearing the question, is that those of you that have a physician mortgage, if you decide to turn around and rent the home, you do not have to go and refinance that home in order to keep it as a rental. Like it is what it is. You owned it. It was your primary residence. You had the intent. You've lived in it for about three years, which is fantastic. And there's no issue with having that type of mortgage. It's what's done is done as long as you're making your payments all as well. What you can't do though, you cannot go get another physician mortgage for a primary residence. You're essentially blocked. You can have one at a time. So if you needed a new home in this area, so option one or option three was to rent the home and to rent in the new area. If there was an option for that was rent the home and buy a new area, you could not utilize a physician mortgage to do that. You would have to have the 20% down. If you didn't have the 20% down, you would then be just like any other borrower, even though you're a physician and you're going to have to pay PMI or private mortgage insurance, which kind of stinks. It's basically think of it as an added expense or rent on top of your mortgage payment and it protects the bank in case you default. So big bummer. Now, with option three, I'd like to talk through it for a second because that's the one that has you keeping this home. I would want to know, do you know how much your house would rent for? And if it can't cover the mortgage payment or it simply just breaks even, you have an issue and I would probably just sell the house. Now, I would also factor in that, okay, let's just, that's the initial like gut check. Hey, and I'm going to use random numbers. Hey, it can rent for a thousand. My mortgage payment's a thousand. Cool. Gut check is that it's going to break even. But now look at is is there any deferred maintenance that's going to come up in the next one, three, five years? You're going to have turnover. You're going to have just general wear and tear on the house as tenants turn over or things change. Hey, dishwasher broke or the laundry or your washer needs to be maintained or hey, you need to have your you know HVAC guy out to run their normal. Uh, tests and to make sure that everything's up and running before you get into summer. If say this is again leaning on stuff that I do in Vegas that we've got to go through before it gets super hot because it's hot as hell there. I make sure the AC is working for your tenants. After you've planned all that, and I would also plan on some vacancy. Typically, you say five percent vacancy rate, so you're not going to collect everything. You're also going to have fees that if you have a property manager, they're going to take eight to ten percent of the rents. Typically, that's about ten percent. Uh, unless you have some connection that gives you a cheaper rate. Then, you know, if they go and find you a new tenant, you're going to also have to pay them that referral fee for finding you said tenant. So you've got to make sure that you run all your analysis. And when it comes down to it, if you don't still have enough money, then that's a bad investment and you don't want to own a bad investment. That'd be silly. I'm not saying it needs to hit the 1% rule, but it needs to be worth the investment itself without any other strings attached. Would you go buy this if you hadn't already bought it? Would you go buy it today? And I threw in the 1% rule, so I should probably stop for a second and say what that is. And really, it's just something in the real estate industry that they're stipulating that a property should bring in 1% of the sales price in rent per month. So if the home was worth $200,000, the 
house should be bringing in $2,000 of rent per month. Now, if it doesn't hit that rule, that's not the end of the world, but that's like a general guideline for those that want to just quickly rule out properties. Now, this option or this, now this scenario that you have going on is the problem with buying homes and training because you're only going to stay there for a few years. And yes, you thought you'd be there for a long time, but like things happen, right? And you're, you got an offer that you can't turn down as, as you put it, and that you're going to force to be moved and it forces you to move to a new location. And when you buy a house, there's a lot of costs associated, but there's a lot more costs associated when you sell the house. So just because you bought it, and again, I'm using random numbers, 200 and it's worth 200, you're still going to take a bath on that house because when you go to list it, the listing agent's going to take a couple percent to basically represent you and put the house for sale, deal with the other agent and go through all the paperwork, all that. The other agent, the buyer's agent's going to come in and they're going to want to get paid two and a half, three percent. And there's transfer costs and there's all sorts of things like, yes, the buyer's going to pay for the appraisal, but usually they're going to pay for a home inspection. Then that's going to cause you to have to fix some of the stuff that was already deferred maintenance, even if you didn't think that it was. There is a ton of costs with selling a home. So it's not an issue that you buy a home in training. But if you were to do that, I would actually underwrite it as you're buying a rental property. It's not your primary residence, even though you're going to treat it that way in training. And I would underwrite it and go, hey, if I wasn't living in this and I had a renter, what would I do? How would I do it? Would it make money? And if you go through all those pieces and it makes sense, great. But if it doesn't, I would be again very cautious on buying a home and training. And the real rarity would be is if the market was depressed and, and I would say understand that you're getting a good deal that you're buying into a place. Let's say it was Denver seven years ago. Great. Well, the Denver's going to be appreciating that it had been hit by the crisis in 2008 and nine, it's probably just starting to appreciate back up. That's, I think, a little bit different scenario. So looking at all these things, I'm going to say if you can actually turn around and rent it and make money and truly make money, not just on paper, but like truly make money, that is a good option if then you want to become a landlord. Odds are is that you're likely going to have to sell the home, you're probably going to take a loss on it. And I would Honestly, rent in the new area. Make sure, obviously, you said it was like a hometown and you knew the areas, but make sure you're going to be there. Make sure you like the jobs. There's so many things that can go wrong, especially right now during COVID with contracts and everything. I would not be super stoked to go buy a new home in the new area while I just took a loss in the home. I'd say learn from your mistake. Walk before you run. Hopefully that helps. Sorry that you're in that situation. But unfortunately, it's a really common situation for many new attendings to be in. And if you're a resident listening, don't get stuck in this situation. Do your due diligence, underwrite it as a rental. And if the numbers all work out, great. And if not, just rent. Our last question came in from Philip, who emailed this in to me. And I would really appreciate if you guys would call the questions in because I just love hearing your guys' voices. It makes me just a little more excited to answer your stuff. and. Obviously, and honestly, a lot of stuff gets lost in email because I get lots and lots of emails. So I want to make sure I answer all your questions. And I try really hard to put them all in one area and organize it all. But sometimes things get missed. But anyway, Philip had a great question. And I'm going to read it here for you guys. 
Ryan, thank you so much for everything you do for young docs drowning in debt. Your guidance is much appreciated. My question relates to debt snowball method, which I prefer over the avalanche to leverage behavioral finance. My wife has 29,000 in student loan debt fixed at 3.9%. And I have an enormous student loan balance at 348,000 at 1.8% variable. While the snowball method says I should divert excess cash flow to the $29,000 debt, I'm worried that my variable loan is likely to become more expensive soon. The max rate is 9%. The max increase per year is 2%. We also have a mortgage, which is $484,000 fixed at 3.7%, which I will clearly, which clearly I'm going to be paying the minimum towards for now. What are your thoughts on paying down the variable loan first as a quote-unquote insurance policy just in case my rate starts to skyrocket? I have no other debts, consumer or otherwise. Thanks so much for your time, Philip. Philip, what's up, man? Thank you so much for emailing in the question. And I like the question a lot. We haven't really covered too much on this, so that's why I wanted to really highlight it here. And you obviously know by listening that I am a big fan of paying down debt. Well, I don't see interest rates I don't see interest rates rising anytime soon. I personally would play this a little more conservative if it were me, and mainly because the amount of interest on the big loan is going to be so much higher than the small loan. There's a huge discrepancy between the two. And if we were to have an increase in rates, which again, I don't think is going to happen in the very short term, but it could happen where maybe your interest rate goes from 1.8 to 2.8 on the variable loan. That 1% difference is literally pretty much the entire balance of your small student debt loan that your wife has. So with that said, I would be more inclined to pay down the 348 loan, which sounds enormous. And it is a, obviously a big number, but in the scope of things and looking at Looking at finances for hundreds of physicians, the average is about 300000 So you're not completely screwed. So I don't want you to feel that way. And it sounds like that as you're writing, you might be just feeling overwhelmed with it. What's happened in the past is in the past. Let's fix going in the future. And I think going in the future, I would be aggressively paying that debt down, knowing that it's variable and that it could change at any time. I don't think it's going to change over, let's say, a 10-year period that if you had a 1% change in that, it's almost the amount of interest difference is almost the entire student loan balance that your wife has. If her balance was considerably higher, instead of 29K, let's say it was 100,000, I would actually flip what I'm talking about and I would pay down that debt first because the interest would not be the whole balance. The interest would be 20, 25% of that balance. And so I would, again, this really comes back to math, is I would run the numbers, look at it, and I did this high level for you so I could just talk through it. But if the the balance is a lot higher, then the amount of interest you're going to pay on that loan is a lot higher. And I would be more inclined to just wipe out the 100K debt, if that your wife's student loans was that, than to turn around and hit up the variable. Regardless, I would likely pay off both student debts before I hit the mortgage. There's tax benefits on the mortgage side, uh, but also there's going to be this mental behavioral piece that once your student loan debt is gone, you will have a lot more money to allocate to investing 
and you will feel a lot better and a lot more accomplished by paying off all your student debts. So there's some behavioral piece to this too. Now, personal finance is personal. You know this. And as it goes with everything, this is entertainment purposes only and not specific advice. But if this situation was me, that I was looking at it uh, as it sits with the data that I know, again, it's not everything, I would be more inclined to pay off the variable rate just because in the next probably one to three years, we are going to see that rate increase. And if you said, I think the only time I would, you know, as I talk through this, my thought process can obviously change as well. But if we were to say, hey, by the way, my income is outsized, we're making some really good money, and I plan to have this crushed in five years, then I would say, well, actually, I'd probably switch to the $29,000 debt if you're able to make that in just a few payments, right? If let's say you made 600000 as a household, that changes this versus, hey, I'm a pediatrician making 180000 obviously you'd have more money to allocate towards paying off your loans in a quicker fashion. So the interest rate risk and duration of interest rate is not going to be as much of an influence in the decision. So part of this has to do with your household income. Part of it has to do how you feel about debt. The other part is what you think will happen with interest rates. And keep in mind, what you think will happen with interest rates is just like trying to pick uh, one of the stocks on the stock market that's going to do well or not do well. You won't know, but there's a lot of factors that go into this and likely to say that if this was me sitting here on, uh, let's say, a lower paying specialty or field in in medicine, that you're not making six, seven hundred thousand dollars a year, you're making a couple hundred thousand as a household. Fantastic. I'd pay off the variable, then move towards the fixed debt because the balances are so dramatically different. So, Philip, thank you. I hope that was helpful for you. And for all of you, thank you so much for being here, for contributing to the show, for participating, for being part of our community, which if you haven't, by the way, join us, financialresidency.com slash community. We'd love to have you in there. We're answering questions on air. We're actually answering some questions in our community. So please be active, get your questions answered, and we'd love to help you out. Like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, now we are fee-only financial planners. And if you need our help, we are here to help you. Please go to physicianwallservices.com, book a free intro call. Literally, it's 15 minutes. You're hanging out with me. We can see if we're a good fit. And if not, no worries. I can even refer you to someone that might be a better fit. Trust me, it happens all the time. So anyway, thank you so much. And please share this podcast with other physicians and their families. We want to grow the community so we can help more people take control over their financial lives to increase their financial acumen, to feel comfortable about their finances, to do all the good things that hopefully all of you are doing, taking some of this information, applying it to your own situation, making great choices or better choices with your finances so you can achieve financial independence and retire when you want and enjoy life. So I appreciate all of you. I love all of you. You guys are amazing people. Thank you so much. And I couldn't believe that we hit a million downloads, by the way. How awesome is that? Like this podcast is affecting, we can now say a million lives. And I am very thrilled that we are doing that. So thank you so much for being here. Have a great rest of your week and I will see you on Monday. Cheers. 